podcast was recorded at State Library Victoria on Aboriginal land, the unceded stolen land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. We pay our respects to the elders, past and present. Penny here. I'm just by myself doing Trove Chat today and that's easy for me because I can uh, talk to myself about Trove for hours. So I won't do that though, just a couple of minutes. One thing I've been thinking about is what to call myself as a Trove lover and so I'm wondering if there is or should there be a word for those of us who are a bit obsessed by Trove, Trove heads or Trovophiles. But if anyone has any ideas, please let me know because I would love to have a label for this big part of my identity. Today we are talking to Emily Gale, who is what I would describe as a a children's book all-rounder. So she's an author, but she's also worked in publishing. She's an editor. She has a very good newsletter about children's literature. It's a substack called Voracious, which I subscribe to. So welcome, Emily, to In Those Days. Thank you so much. Delighted to be here with the two of you. Yay. <laughs> Long time listener. First time caller. Oh, yeah, nice. <laughs> oh, that's nice. <laughs> oh, and I forgot to say, Emily, recently for her book, The Goodbye Year, she won the New South Wales Premier's Young People's History Prize. I did, and it was my first prize, so I'm very, very proud. That's very exciting. Did you get a, a sash or what did you get? Uh, or a crown. A, yes, I did get a, a small parade. And oh, a, is that what you're wearing now? A oh, giant check. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone loves a novelty check. Actually, my partner kept saying that he came to the award ceremony with me, which was at the, the State Library in Sydney. So he's in IT. He doesn't oh, know anything about books. Yeah. And never he was reads. just giving it a he go. He kept saying, is there going to be a giant check? <laughs> So basically, Emily Gale, I would say that anything you can do to a kid's book, she's done it. <laughs> That's not consent yeah. at all. Mainly pile them up and wait for the days to come when I can just read them all. Oh, that's, you see, you're that's good. what I really want to do. You read. You're you're excellent. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you read, Penny? I do. I read a little <laughs> bit, but I feel guilty about how much I haven't read. Yes. Because I'm always on trove, wasting time. Yes. <laughs> but it's never but a waste read. of time to be on trove. <laughs> So the topic that we're going to be talking about today is something that I read about in Emily's newsletter. It was about the Greenaway Medal, which has been renamed. Mm. And Emily was talking about that, which we'll talk about later as well. But she was talking about the illustrator who the medal is named after, Kate Greenaway. I looked up Kate Greenaway in Trove and saw, oh, there's a few articles about her and I looked at her illustrations and I kind of remembered it a little bit from childhood. It all looked a bit familiar. So, Christina, did you read Kate Greenaway growing up? Well, I didn't know that I read it, but I did have a little bit of a search before coming in today and certainly the images were very familiar to me. I don't remember much of the actual stories, but definitely the pictures. Yeah, I think maybe the stories are not... The yeah, well, they're, they're not the point. There's, are they? there's little little poems and little ditties and things, but really, it's the illustrations that she is mm. most well known for. And so, did you read her books or look at her books growing up? Yeah, I, I think looking at Kate Greenaway's illustrations would be my first memory of children's picture books. Yeah, um, I used to stay a lot with my grandparents on my mum's side, um, and they lived in Hampstead in London, which is where Kate Greenaway lived. The, later part of her life and they had a fantastic collection of books which were very sort of old and beautifully bound and had tissue paper in them and all very fancy they weren't at all precious about their things and so I remember them saying to me you can take that big book off the shelf and you can look at it and be very careful and I remember feeling very proud that I was being trusted Mm. to look at these very gorgeous books and that would have been a Kate Greenaway book. Oh, that's lovely. There was a family connection to Kate Greenaway, wasn't there? Yeah. Well, just I'll go right right back as we are. We love to talk about history in this <laughs> podcast. Um, so I think my great-great-great-grandmother was a landscape artist and she supported her family with, with her art because her mm. husband was very ill. Her son became an art dealer and um, he had a gallery in Leicester Square and then that sort of became the family thing 
art dealing and having exhibitions and so on. And his name was Ernest Brown, and he counted Kate Greenaway as a friend. Ah, and that was not through the gallery, though, was it? Or they... They didn't exhibit her work, I don't think. Well, although they did have about twenty-five exhibitions a year, that was they were they ran wow. their art gallery very, very differently to to most. They were really a kind of art gallery for the people, oh. so they weren't sort of exclusive. There was a turnstile at the door, and you paid a little, a small amount to go in, and so anybody could come in for like a small amount of money and have a look at the exhibitions. You didn't have to buy anything. There was oh, no, okay. none of that kind of stuffiness about it. Yeah, so I'm not sure if they did exhibit her work, but this great-great-grandfather was very interested in illustrators. So he had a friendship with her and with Sir John Tenniel, who did the Alice in Wonderland illustrations and various other illustrators Ooh, yeah. he loved. That's amazing yeah. heritage for you as someone who... Yeah. Well, I didn't really know about it. Mm. I actually didn't know about it at the time. I didn't know that his mother had published a children's book Really? Muriel's Dreamland. I had absolutely no oh, idea wow. about it. I just found that out by myself and then phoned my mum and said, did you know that there was a children's book? I think I might. Oh, never really? heard of it. No, she didn't know. Never her. heard of it. Oh, wow. So I had to go on eBay and sort of buy copies for all the family and go, here we go. The first, <laughs> the first children's book in our family was not by me. It was no. actually by was it Eleanor any, Brown. Was it any good? <laughs> yeah, it's called Muriel's Dreamland and it is very sort of fairies and dreams and and that sort of thing so if that's your sort of thing yeah it was actually a vehicle for her daughter who was also an artist she was trying to sort of give her daughter a leg up into Ah. the world of illustration and she also became an artist as well you so yeah Mm. you do have a big pedigree there even if you didn't yeah. know about it, yeah, I would not call you a nepo. <laughs> no thanks, <laughs> nepo kids book person. I'm not because I'm you really didn't not. even know. know, and they didn't help you. No, <laughs> they didn't. They were so dead by then that they couldn't. Help me. <laughs> well, that's lovely. But illustration. Have you ever done illustration? Because I only know you as a writer, but are you also not in any way? Okay, really not. And I was very jealous of my brother growing up because he was very good at art. And I was not. Uh-huh. I was sort of all right at copying at a push, but not could mm. not draw from my imagination whatsoever. And I found that very frustrating. Uh, uh, what so about your kids? The, both very good generation. At art. Yeah. yeah, both of them. Yeah, it's yeah. coming back. Daughter's just done her. <laughs> she did art VCE. Yeah, she's very good, but doesn't want to pursue it because she doesn't want to live the life of an artist, which uh, is understandable. <laughs> yeah, <I get> she <laughs> wants to be able to earn a living. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know. How's your drawing? Well, fun fact, when I <laughs> when I was at uni um, and I was doing zoology, I discovered I'm really good at drawing bones <laughs> to the oh, point that, that I ended up getting paid to draw bones for a couple of university handbooks. I had no yeah. idea. It's a really niche market. I would have that in my bio, but paid if, to draw bones. Yeah, if That's anyone cool. needs bones drawn, particularly skulls, I'm really good. I love that. <laughs> have you tried to draw anything else? <laughs> Look, I used, I used to really, really enjoy drawing very detailed sort of specimen drawings. So I really enjoyed that. I loved art at school, but I seem to be much better doing very detailed, very accurate things, which is quite strange because I'm not very detailed and accurate in any other part of my life. very interesting. Well, Mm. that sounds very like Beatrix Potter because she grew up in her bedroom surrounded by specimens and that's how she taught herself to draw because she didn't go to school. She was her brother went to school and she sort of stayed at home yeah. and sort of did her own thing. Um, but, yeah, she would draw dead things and mm. really study anatomy and that's yeah. why she was so good at drawing animals. Yeah, so that's interesting. That's obviously, I, I've missed out on Jemima Puddle Duck. That's <laughs> still time. I, yeah. I, I don't think you've missed out. No, I'll just draw some really creepy kids book with bones. Well, <laughs> I think there's a market for that now. Yeah. There's a John Classen picture book that just <gasps> came out called The Skull. Oh. And it's about a little girl who finds this skull and they have a friendship. Oh, wow. So, so you wow. could have it's like out a there. follow-up. It's find, out there. find a femur or something. <laughs> Hunt down a humerus. <laughs> <laughs> this is a series we're creating yeah. on the spot. Absolutely. Yeah. This is why we get Emily here. <laughs> exactly, just get the ideas, ideas pumping. <laughs> it has been a very long time since I've drawn a bone, though. <laughs> I don't think it would have left you. No. So... <laughs> Because it, Kate Greenaway was so famous, 
even though she lived in England, mm. there's plenty of things published in Australian papers about her and sometimes also because they um, republish articles from overseas. So I've got one that was actually published in the Toronto Globe but it was republished in the Launceston Examiner from Monday the 5th of June 1893. It says, A charming artist, Miss Kate Greenaway, has inherited her remarkable powers from her father who was a wood engraver of no mean merit and who took a great and constant interest in the art proclivities of his daughter, daily instructing her when she was quite a little girl how to observe and what to observe and, in fact, coaching her in the first elements of art. Although a circumstance now well-nigh forgotten, there is little doubt that Miss Greenaway's first great hit was due to what may be called the card fever. (laughs) (laughs) It was not till some 20 years ago that people first began to think of sending each other those little tokens at various festive seasons of the year, which is quite interesting. And they were very elaborate. They had lovely things on them. They weren't just a sort of flat card. One of the pioneers in such matters, Marcus Ward, the great art publisher, saw some of Miss Greenaway's drawings and at once commissioned her to design a set of cards for him. During the first year that she worked for him, she did some 70 exquisite pictures and her name became widely known. So she's like famous for doing Christmas cards. Yeah, that's how she started out and yeah. then, then into books. In 1879, Mr's Castle & Co issued her Little Folks painting book, which was sold by the hundred thousand. Yeah. Hundreds of thousands the numbers of copies. Were big. Wow. Yeah. Can you imagine now if your publisher said, by the way, here's your royalty statement, 150,000 copies. Oh. How do you feel? <laughs> I mean, you know, <laughs> that is your royalty statement, isn't it, Penny? Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, she was trying to downplay it. <laughs> I mean, I know it's probably different. I mean, Australia is much smaller than England than the UK and America, but mm. even there, surely, is that a lot? Oh, it's still a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. Mm. When Under the Window appeared in November of the same year, it made Kate Greenaway famous. Yeah, it was her breakout work. Yeah. So. <laughs> I haven't read it. What's Under the Window like? Well, it's sort of a lot of what you associate with Kate Greenaway in terms of the loveliness and the the long dresses and the the countryside ideal sort of life, which is really what she was always trying to present as a contrast to the sort of deprivations of the Industrial Revolution and how that had changed children's lives for the very much worse. She was always trying to give children this escape from... Mm. that the life that they might have been living especially in London which even though she always lived in London she was not really a huge fan of I think yeah but Under the Window interestingly does contain a little bit of the dark side of Kate Greenaway's imagination as well oh but then that was sort of shaken out of her by John Ruskin who she became very good friends with ah we're gonna get to John Ruskin Mm. he's yeah we'll get to him That's a promise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I do feel like the title Under the Window, it does sound a little bit like maybe there's a peeping Tom, but... <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit creepy. Just lurking. Well, just looking at the Kate Greenaway book that I've kept from birth, actually, this would have been given to me in 1975, which is a selection from Marigold Garden. There is not a single man in this book. Oh. Not one. There's There are little boys... And probably the oldest, the oldest boy in this book looks to be about seven. But apart from that, it's all young women, young girls and, and mums. Because it's the whole thing. It's idealistic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Men just weigh you down. That's what we're yeah. hoping for. <laughs> yeah, just draw them out of your yes. picture books. <laughs> just don't acknowledge that they exist. Refuse to draw men. Yes. Now for a word as to the way in which this charming artist makes everyday material do duty to her pencil. Even when she was at school, Kitty, as she was called, began to make studies of all her little friends, noting here or there a quaint bonnet, a long cloak, a short cape or a boy's smock. So were you a writer? Did you always want to be a writer? Secretly, yes, but I did not think it was a realistic thing to do. Um, Not because I was really practical and thinking about money, because I really thought authors were just all dead. I did not <laughs> right. really have any concept of authors being alive and just roaming around us. Well, all the mm. good ones are. <laughs> I don't know if you read uh, that article in the Saturday paper. No, I didn't it? because I cancelled my subscription to the Saturday paper for not having any children's book content. <laughs> well, it's got some <laughs> you now. You took a stand. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, but I did hear someone emailed it to me, obviously thinking that I would immediately write a rude reply to it. So, mm. what does it say? It says that she doesn't like fart books. Um, but fart books for her are not just books with farts. They're books that are too moralistic or too heavy or whatever. And basically books in the olden days were heaps better and there's been a war on imagination and kids these days aren't even doing pretend play because one primary school teacher told her that. So that's definitely true. <laughs> wow. New to me. Yeah. Mm. My daughter plays cat school at recess but, you know, <laughs> where right. there's one person's a teacher <laughs> and everyone else is a cat. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah, but kids are not doing imaginative play anymore and it's because the books aren't rich enough. It's because of the books. Yeah. Oh, that's a very long (laughs) bow, isn't it? And then at the end she goes, oh, look, there are some good recent books like... um, don't. You know, it's hard to believe now, aren't you? that it's 60 years ago, but um, where the wild things are. (laughs) Oh, no. And she did say Alice and Lester. That was the only alive author that she kind of mentioned. Right. Hungry Caterpillar. Brilliant. Oh. Also a good book. Cheers. Yeah. Cheers. They're really recent. Well, she obviously knows the industry <laughs> inside out and is best qualified to make that point. Mm. So fantastic. Thanks, Saturday Paper. That's just bizarre, the no imaginative play, because it's all around us. Everywhere I look at school. Yeah, they're well, all, you would know. I mean, they're, they're all making weird stuff up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, you know, there's a particular flower bush and they've all made up this thing that they get superpowers from flowers. It's... It's a whole situation. Well, We've had to tell them that they're not allowed to eat the flowers. It's all. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with their imagination. Turn your back and they're eating saying. the flowers <laughs> again to get their superpowers. So when did you start to think that maybe you could be a writer? I just always did write. Yeah. You know, I, and wrote some really quite awful poetry all through <laughs> my teenage years. I never really finished stories. I started a lot of stories mm. at, or books, but I never finished them. But the good thing about poems was that you could finish them. Stop at any point. Yeah, Yeah. that's done. Um, (laughs) The weirder, the better. (laughs) Halfway through a sentence. Yeah, Yeah, that's art. Yeah. My first job out of uni was um, with a children's publisher and I became an editor. So, but again, of dead authors. So, oh, (laughs) yeah. Beatrix Potter being one of them, the main one. Are you allowed to edit? What do you. Mm. (laughs) Well, no, there were very strict rules in those days about what you could do with Beatrix Potter. Like such as you could not flip a picture of Peter Rabbit just because you wanted to like put it on a calendar. It had to be the way that she had originally drawn it. Wow. It's all different now. But um, in my day, there were very strict rules. Yeah. So I guess from there and working with children's books, I then sort of thought, oh, I think I really want to actually be writing them. Did you start writing your first book while you were still working in publishing? Um, Yes. So I imagine that's quite hard. I started writing an adult novel when I was working in children's Uh, publishing, so it felt very separate. Yeah. And I felt like I didn't really know anything about adult publishing, and I I didn't. I did very silly things (laughs) around around that because I really only knew about the little children's world. Okay, this article continues... These almost daily memoranda were continued later on. Rarely a week has elapsed, but she pays a visit to some schoolroom to seek out new material. Now, you're not allowed to do that anymore. (laughs) You're not allowed (laughs) to just rock up at a school. And, Christina, you're an assistant principal. This is my understanding. Yeah, there's a lot of checks that people have to have if they want to pop in. Even qualified allied health people need to be put through the ringer. To check that they're legit. Yeah, you can't just be like, I'm just wanting to get some inspiration. Yeah, my next book. Sense the vibe in the classroom. Some few years ago, she would constantly be met, sketchbook in hand, at some of the great charitable festivals, notably those in which children took part. And it was in St Paul's Cathedral, crowded on great days with the little folk of both town and country, that many of her happiest thoughts took shape. Emily, do you get? inspiration from going to schools because you go to schools in a legal formal capacity <laughs> to do talks full check yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> do I get inspiration from going into school yeah or spending time around kids like do you, is that necessary for your work I've definitely taken inspiration from my own children mm. and from their friends and that sort of thing, but not in a creepy, I will steal your lives mm. kind yeah. of way. Or oh, that was a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> um, not, no, not in that way. And I don't, and my children have never sort of complained that I've stolen their stories or anything yeah. like that. I've, 
But I think just spending time with children and remembering what it's like to be eight or what it's like to be 12, I think mm. that's what that's what that does. Yeah. Spending time with them takes you back to your own feeling. And that's the most important thing for writing a, a book from from a child's perspective. I think some your actual memories might not be exactly what happened. I mean, memory is mm. a very slippery thing, isn't it? But it's the feeling of being that age. Yeah. That that's what you're trying to tap into. Yeah. And the thing that I maybe is sometimes is just like the details of schools, like how they do things differently now, how they have music mm. instead of bells and stuff like that. But yeah, that's so important. I mean, obviously, I um, grew up in London, a totally different kind of system and at a totally different time. So uh, having that, that connection to Australian schools is very important to me. Uh, and having Australian editors too, who say that is a very English thing to say, Emily, we're not going to say that. <laughs> Which does happen a little yeah. bit, but not that much. I've been here for 15 years now, so, yeah. Oh, that's great. Okay. Miss Greenaway uses almost pure colours when she works. The outline is firmly drawn over with pen or pencil and the shadows are then struck in with grey. She has built for herself a delightful little cottage on Hampstead Hill, full of the quaint gables and strange ingle nooks that she loves to put into her pictures. Now, can I just say, does everyone know what an ingle nook is? No. Mm, I feel like I don't. It's no. like a little uh, bit near a chimney. Oh. Like a little nook. Okay. Ingle nook. Yeah. Lovely. <laughs> I like to try and use that in a sentence yeah. today. Yes, I do want one now. <laughs> yes. I didn't know I did, but I do now. <laughs> <laughs> On the lawn outside is a gnarled apple tree, which has lately figured in some of her designs. The studio is innocent of artistic properties and is essentially a workroom. Yes, her studio, I've seen a photograph of it, it's quite plain. Yeah. So did you ever walk past a house, see it? Yes, I've definitely, I've seen it from the outside. It's now flats, it's not a whole house anymore. Oh. Yeah, they've all been carved mm. up. An ingle um, for everyone. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> everyone gets an ingle <laughs> But yeah, but it's in Hampstead, which I did spend a lot of my childhood in Hampstead. Miss Greenaway has a morbid horror of being interviewed or written about in any way. Oh. She was fine with podcasts, though, can I just yeah, say. She, she welcomed them. So this yeah. is not disrespectful at <laughs> no. all. Mm. Right up her alley. <laughs> and has even been known to refuse to visit her friends for fear a journalist should be about. Oh, Wow, I love how publicity shy she was. Yeah. So I reckon lots of authors and illustrators are introverts. I think lots are. But is that okay these days? Like if you if someone sent their book to a publisher, publisher goes, I love it. Imagine this. <laughs> love it. Definitely want to publish it. It's perfect. Don't change a word. And then the author said, but I will not speak to journalists. I will not talk to anyone. I'm very shy. I'm very private. Mm. Is that okay? Can well, you... it is now because no journalist is interested in talking to a That's children's fine. author. It's fine. doesn't make any difference. No. Newspapers don't write about children's books. They don't have any review space. They're not interested. Yeah. So, yeah, fine. Fine. What if you said, <laughs> I don't want to do any social media? I don't find that publishers are leaning that heavily on yeah. authors for it. I mean, a lot of authors and illustrators do take it upon themselves to do it because they think it's important. I, yeah. I haven't heard no one cares, Australian so. publishers giving the hard word particularly. Uh, no one's ever wanted um, me to do anything. More, oh. more so in America, <laughs> I would say. Like I remember when yeah. I was first published in America, the, the publisher said, now I want you to change your Twitter icon to the book cover. That's what we want you to do. I've never been told to do anything like yeah. that by an Australian publisher. And... Most people really want to go to festivals. Yes. But if you said, I don't want to go to festivals, I don't want to go to schools, do you think they'd care? Or are they, is that They'd be like, worried. Yeah. Because then they're completely relying on the market to carry you. There's no, mm. there's no other route. And, of course, like visiting schools and doing festivals and so on is a very lucrative route for some authors. Mm. Again, it's not for everyone. Not everyone will I've never been invited to a public festival. Haven't you? No. Um I've done Somerset once. Yeah. Which is a schools that one's huge schools festival, yeah. which is absolutely amazing. But no, I've never been invited to um a public one or haven't really done public like the writers no, no nothing like that. What are they doing? <laughs> well there's a lot of authors. There's a lot of authors. Yeah, but you're, and not, you're not just bringing 
Penny's yes. outraged. Actually, she's Penny's absolutely my new agent. Yes, you're an author, <laughs> but there are a lot of other panels that they could put you on, like a lot of other things that they could you could talk about. I don't. I don't think this is actually the big reason, but I guess I am. British, I sound British. That you know, Australian publishing has to look after Australian authors. I'm like a ring in, only just got here kind of thing. That so I don't. Know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, but I just think there's just a lot of there's a lot of interesting people. You can't sort of expect anything. So I think you do have to be prepared to do your own thing. Yeah. Given that that you haven't been invited to do all those things because mm. you are one of probably the people that everyone's heard of and everyone I think everyone I knows think outside of Victoria I think oh I've, really I think so <laughs> I'm sure they have maybe they have a little I don't know um but I do but I have worked hard and not just just I think I've worked hard because I love children's books so I talk a lot about other people's books as well. Yeah, and I think it's that kind of building up in the community and when there's an issue, you mm. are sort of at the forefront of that. Oh, I mean, I have a lot of opinions, Penny, so... If <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I like Best people always do. <laughs> and I am sort of, I suppose I'm a bit gobby, to use a British yeah. phrase, and so it's pretty easy to call on me if you want to make some trouble. Yeah. <laughs> Exciting. So not like Kate Greenway then. No. In that sense. No, but I do have that side as well and it's, that's always a battle inside. Sometimes I do think, oh, God, Emily, why can't you just shut up? <laughs> <laughs> I um, wrote a tweet last night and then deleted it. Not that anyone had noticed it, but I was just like, oh, do, is this what I want to be? And I press tweet, you see, that's the difference. Well, I tweet it and then I go, oh, you had tweet regret. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. It's very hard to have a kind of public image. Any kind of public yeah. image, I think, is difficult. It does come with a lot of angst. Okay, so the article continues. Among the most intimate friends are Lord and Lady Tennyson. Mm-hmm. With them, she spends many happy days at Hasselmere in the Isle of Wight. She is devoted to children and they return the compliment for she is one of the kindest and sweetest tempered of women. It is said that a West End firm once offered her £2,000 a year if she would design the clothes of their Lilliputian customers. But she refused, preferring to work her own way and at her own time. Next to drawing, she is devoted to music and may sometimes be seen listening intently at one of the Monday pops or simpler ballad concerts. She leads a simple, regular life, seldom if ever goes out in the evening. All her joy is in her work. But I think interesting that she was so known for being popular with children and for genuinely enjoying the company of children, which is not necessarily the case for a lot of beloved Mm. children's creators Mm. of old. Well, even of... Or of, <laughs> of late. Well, <laughs> I think now we're really known for it, though. Like, yeah. we do go into schools. Yeah, and... you're meant to like it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It helps. Yeah. I can't think of any uh, kind of curmudgeonly. Um, I think there are probably some curmudgeonly Oh, people. actually, I can think of a curmudgeonly person. <laughs> <laughs> but that's all right. That's, you know, it's not a prerequisite. But I think at least at the start you're meant to be pretty happy. Like if you, you know, you're in your 20s or 30s and you get your first book published, you're meant to be very excited. Yes. Yes. Oh, definitely. Yeah. You can get a bit old and grouchy after a couple of decades. In yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I found some reviews of her work from the time. So this is from the Australasian from the 27th of October, 1883. It's titled Miss Kate Greenaway's Latest Child's Book. In this charming child's book, which is sent to me by by Mr Mullen Collins Street, Miss Greenaway has taken a number of poems by Jane and Anne Taylor and has given to them new interest and fresh significance by a number of drawings by her inimitable pencil. The result of the lady artist illustrating for children the poems of these lady poets. Lady, lady. (laughs) Who in their writing succeeded so well in interestingly holding the attention of children. It is a very pleasant book. Pleasant. Mm. Yes. Well, that's a three star on Goodreads really, isn't it? A a pleasant book. Yes. (laughs) Had lots of pleasant thoughts reading this pleasant book. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We have a large number and variety of Miss Greenaway's delightful children with their quaintly antique attire, oddly formal but always graceful attitudes and their solemn features and wonderfully grave eyes. Mm. 
We have also many of their equally delightful mummers with their soft, slender forms, high-waisted dresses and limp, clingy drapery. Ew. Children and mummers grouped as prettily as possible and always so as really to illustrate and give character and meaning to the poem to which they are appended. Ooh. It's very important to clump the mummers and the yes. children together attractively. And if we had yeah. if we had a tip for authors and illustrators today, that would be it, wouldn't it? <laughs> clump, <laughs> clump your mummers yeah. and your kids the mama together. Clump. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the groups that she draws are delightful very clumps. delightful. Yeah. Um, but obviously, by our standards, I mean, all of the women have the exact same figure which is the figure of someone who does not eat very much. They're all the exact same colour. You know, yeah. so it's... Mm. it's No one's obviously, from Bali. You know, it's, <laughs> it's the late 1800s. Like, it's not a huge surprise looking at it now. Yeah, but she was, you know, this is a very positive review of the lady's work. Do you read reviews of your books? I really protect myself now. Do you? Yeah, because it's so easy to put me off. And I think I've taken a lot of arrows over the years. So now I really protect myself. I have read some terrible reviews of my work. Yeah. And um, I think the worse they are, the better in a way. Oh, um, yeah, because like, then it gets funny. Then it's funny. Like there is one on Goodreads that says, do not read unless insane, oh. <laughs> which I love. It's, no, I mean, that's it's, good. There's one of um, my first book, A Loving Richard Feynman, that says, a terrible book about a nerd. <laughs> See, that's a good review. Yeah. I'd even put that on oh, the front. Oh, no, I reckon yeah. it's a Reissue like, that yeah. and put that on the front. Yeah. That's a seller. <laughs> no, now I do really protect myself. I sort of start, might start to read the top and then if I think it's quite all right, then I'll finish it. But yeah. often I just go, oh, no, 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 that sounds like they didn't like it. So even if it's like official ones in publications, like if yeah. you, read, you won't read those either? Um, does your certain, publicist send it to you? If, like, yeah. if they sent it to you and you knew it was positive, would you yes, read it? Yes, absolutely. If the yeah. publicist sends it, I'm reading it. Yeah. And that's lovely. Yeah. Why not have the warm glow mm. of your years of hard work? Um, but I don't go and seek them out anymore. <sighs> so disciplined. I sort of think, what's the point? Because everybody is entitled to have their opinion of my work, but I am not obliged to listen to every single opinion. Yeah. So one thing that does happen occasionally is that someone, an author, will read a review and, and they respond. To it. Oh, dear, please oh, don't. Is there any circumstances in which that... Well, I have to confess, I, I did once reply to... A review privately to ask that they remove and and it was a, a very it wasn't just a, an ordinary reader having their say it was I'm not going to say what it was because I'll get into trouble but it was a big publication and they had put a huge the main spoiler of the book was in the review ah. and they didn't like it and they didn't like my writing that's fine but I said can you please take out the spoiler yeah because I feel like that's not Really, the point of your review? Your and did they? They said they would, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's good. And I wasn't asking them to take out anything negative. I was just asking them yeah. if they could please remove yeah. the spoiler. And then you did yeah. a spray on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> I actually, I didn't. Just let it out. I really didn't. <laughs> but it did teach me to keep away, even in, in that sort of respect. Just don't have uh, an interaction with a reviewer. Yeah. And it happens in comedy too. Oh, I remember someone said that I was the most Australian-sounding comedian that they'd ever heard, and I was like, "Oh, was that? But was that a negative?" Maybe? I don't know. I, it just made me think I sounded like one of the Minogue sisters, like a real nasal kind of twang. And I thought, no, Husey sounds more yes. Aussie than I. I mean, do. that's that's a factual error, and you should yeah. get into. <laughs> I don't know why that really grated on me. I didn't like it. I wouldn't think that that was a negative, though, sounding... It just, why is it bad to sound... I don't know. It just made me like, feel like I was a bit true blue and ochre or something. I didn't like it. I'm like, yeah, but what about the content of what I'm yeah. saying rather than how I'm saying Yes, that's yeah. true. But ever so often a comedian will also go on Twitter and complain about a review and that never goes well either. No. no. Just Unless it. it's like overtly racist or something. Or I like, oh, sure. Oh, that's different. totally different. But if you it's know? just, look, your writing's a bit pedestrian, oh, well, tough. That's yeah. just what they think. When you put stuff out into the 
public sphere, you need to be prepared to cop it. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. And so if you don't like it, then just don't read it. Yeah. Just let people have their opinions. That's what you, yeah. you put your work out there. That doesn't even belong to you anymore. It's just, it's yeah. for somebody else. It's yeah. for a reader to have a, a relationship with. I see it as it's kind of like the the price of getting to express yourself and also of all the nice things that happen yeah. as a result. It can't just all be people telling you how great you are. So I, I was just going to say about the review situation. Oh, yeah, yeah. So the artist Whistler was one that my family were very supportive of. Whistler? Yeah, Whistler. See, this is the thing. Emily's sort of like, oh, this has had this art gallery in London. I looked it up. It was a very significant art gallery with all <laughs> of the most famous artists at yeah. the time. They were very good at finding people and giving them a go. But, yeah, so they had a, this relationship with Whistler, who they loved, um, and he was a bit of a character. But he sued John Ruskin, who the art ah. critic, for libel because wow. John Ruskin had said something like, you know, oh, Whistler's work was just like chucking a pot of paint at a canvas and he felt it lacked the sort of the moral fibre that he felt art should have. Well, we'll get so, to yeah. his moral fibre. But anyway, Whistler won, but he was only compensated with a farthing. Ah, oh. but it was a moral victory. So there you go. Yeah, it was the principle. Don't, don't sue your reviewers for libel. No. Because you will only possibly win a farthing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're going to talk about Kate Greenaway's relationship with Ruskin now. Kate Greenaway was admired by many people mm. during her life. John Ruskin was one of her biggest supporters in some ways. Mm. And he, I didn't know much about him. He was a Victorian writer, philosopher, art critic, did mm. a lot of lectures, went around. And oh, like, he wrote so much. Like a superstar yeah, kind of mm. people. I think he was quite charismatic. Lots of people would okay. come and listen to him talk and stuff. He thought Greenaway was a genius and he told her so. Then he started a correspondence with her and I think there were like almost every day for three years he wrote to her. And then he completely stopped writing to her but she oh. kept writing to him. But he admired her greatly but he also gave her a lot of feedback. Yes, he did. I'll start reading this article and then we can talk more about <laughs> this relationship. Okay, so this is from the Australasian from the 30th of December 1905. So by this stage... Greenway and Ron Ruskin have died and his letters have been published. That Ruskin was a friend of Kate Greenaway is well known, but it is not so well known that, as encourager and critic of her art, he was continually trying in vain to spur her to studies from the nude. Miss Greenaway's graceful pencil always seemed to him to give too much of garments, too little of form. In the biography of the lady by Mrs. Spielman and Layard, there are such passages as the following from Ruskin's letter, pleading for the altogether, which was a way that they used to say the altogether, the yeah, yeah, the nude, yeah. Mm. This so this is from John Ruskin's letter to Greenaway. This cloud lady is very. Shall I do a voice? Yes, do John Ruskin's voice. I mean, I don't know what he sounded like. <laughs> I need to look him up. This cloud lady is very lovely. <laughs> <laughs> That's uncanny. And you really must draw her again for me without any clothes. Ew. Because you've suggested a perfect coal heaver's leg, which I can't think you meant. And you must draw your figures now undraped for a while. Nobody wants anatomy. But you can't get on without form. So let's remember that she drew mm. a lot of children. Yeah. And so he was asking for children to be drawn in the nude. And R Ruskin, he came up with excuses for this, like, oh, it's for art, it's to help you develop. But there were other things in his life, I think, that suggest that he was generally interested in kids in the nude. Mm. <laughs> Do you think that's fair? I don't know. Mm. He certainly was very interested in young women. Mm. And married, well, no, his first wife was only 10 years younger than him, I think. Mm. I, I don't think that what he's saying there is complete sort of insight into him being a pervert. I, I, th I do think he genuinely wanted to um, help to develop Kate Greenaway's artistic mm. skill. And she obviously went to an art school, but she, she wouldn't have been allowed to do that. So I don't think that that's necessarily like a clue, but there are other things in his life that do suggest that he really had a penchant for much younger women. He did ask her quite a few times. Yes. To, to draw. Yeah, and he was very opinionated <laughs> about her work and he would criticise the way she drew feet and hands. Yes. And there, there is something in that. I mean, if you, if you oh, study yeah. her 
feet and hands. They're not perfect feet and hands, but well, they did draw very modest, modestly dressed mm. children and mamas and mamas, <laughs> mamas. And I yeah. think she was much more interested in faces and the eyes and the the little serious faces and so on. But he did influence her. He told her to take all the darkness out of her books, and she did. Oh, that's weird. He didn't want any... In in her first book, Under the Window, there are witches and there are other sort of fantasy on the darker side. And she listened to him. And she did listen to him, and she she stopped drawing those sorts of things. Oh, that's interesting. Um, His letter continues, and I won't do the voice now. I'll forgive you the pig, but we must draw dogs a little better. And we must learn just the rudiments of perspective and draw feet and ankles and a little above and purple and blue things and the sun not like a drop of sealing wax. And then, well, we'll do all that first, won't we? Oh dear, think how happy you are with all that power of drawing and ages to come to work in and paint Fiona's and Nora's and fairies and Mary's and goddesses and bodices. Oh me, when will you do me one without any? Ew. Yeah, that doesn't sound great, does it? <laughs> <laughs> He's dropped the artistic But, I there. mean, if you think that, you know, Kate Greenaway kept drawing the exact same way she always drew. Mm. Um, and she just then, ignored him. Like, he kept yeah. asking for nudes and she just pretended he'd never oh, yeah. said anything. Yeah. yeah. No, she knew exactly what she wanted out of her art and out of yeah. the book she was creating. She was not going to be persuaded to do something different yeah. because she really wanted ch- children to have this gorgeous sort of innocent book to look at. So how important do you find feedback when you're developing something? Yeah, very, very important. And I always take it very, very badly in the first <laughs> minute. <laughs> Terribly. I react so badly, privately though, because I'm very good at internalising things. Um <laughs> And then uh, once it settles and I process it, I think, oh, God, yeah, I'm so glad this person is pushing me. And because yeah. that's so interesting because then the other part of your work is you do manuscript assessments and you mm. give the feedback. Mm. So that must be... Yeah, so and my reports are always like, look, I know this is going to hit you like a ton of bricks. I know it is and I am really sorry that it is, but this is the work that you have to do and everybody has to do it. Unless yeah. you're an absolute genius who never needs any feedback, which is sort of one in a million. You, you've got to do it. So much of this industry is about coming back to your desk and rewriting it. Emily once helped me. I was trying to write a book in a series and the publisher did not like my first attempt and gave me feedback and I just couldn't understand what – I couldn't see what oh. I was meant to do. So Emily read the first chapter and it was so brilliant. Like she just – like, she made me feel better about it first. Like, and I knew exactly <laughs> what you were doing, but it still worked. <laughs> like, you made me feel better about it and then you, like, gave me these really concrete things that I could change and, and then I was like, oh, I know what to do now. Whereas before I just felt like the feedback was, this is not good enough. And yeah. I was like, well, what am I? I don't yeah. uh, and, know. And people like different things. I mean, I do give very creative feedback but I always say, look, this is just how my brain has taken your work, but you must get your creative brain to take it yeah. anywhere. All I'm telling you is there's another way to do this. Yeah. And if there's one other way, there's three other ways. There's always another way to make it work better. So all you need to understand is why it's not working right now and then come back to that point and go in a slightly mm. different direction. It was really, really helpful because I was about to get the sack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it can feel so horrible and you can feel so at sea when you get editorial feedback that doesn't give you any kind of life raft. And this would be for every industry. I mean, you get told how you're doing in your job just as much as we would. And, you know. Sometimes when I don't ask. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes parents have a lot of thoughts and feelings about it. Sometimes probably loud thoughts and feelings too. Yeah. Which we're lucky not to have in our (laughs) industry. Very little shouting. I think yeah. we're mostly very protected from mm. things. From shouters. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Although children can be very blunt, but yes. it's always delivered so gorgeously that you sort of think, oh, fair mm. enough. I yeah. should have made this book shorter. You're right. Mm. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> you always get that question from kids every time we have an author house. Like, Where do you get your ideas from? Yeah. yeah. Every time. Yeah. And yeah. usually after oh. you've just been talking for half an hour. Yeah, yeah. about exactly yeah. where A they come from. slide that says yeah. where do I yeah. where I get my ideas from here. Yeah. I think Less kids than. sometimes go into those things with their question in their head and refuse to listen to any of yeah. that. <laughs> and sometimes school talks are quite long. Yes. You know, adults aren't good at listening long. for that long. Like and sometimes it's an hour. Minutes. That's Exactly. An hour. Yeah, so I, that's why I prefer doing workshops in schools. It's like I used to get booked to do stand-up comedy for like principals associations and so on. And they'd be like, yeah, just like for 45 minutes. I'm like, no. That's a show. No one is yeah. wanting that. Like yeah. 10 minutes max. That's all. But that's how long th- this year all of my school talks were an hour. Yeah. Oh. I mean, they just want to mm. feel a lesson. That's a lesson. Mm. Yeah, which is great when you've got them in a classroom and they've got a piece of paper and you can get them yeah, doing things. I love doing that. Library, but if it. they're just sitting there, no, that takes some very good sitting still skills. Oh, which most don't have, yeah. let's face it. Yeah, so <laughs> I, I like to get them on their feet and do a little bit of a demonstration sometimes just mm. so they get the blood moving a bit. So th- I did find another article that mentioned John Ruskin because his mental health declined quite a lot towards the end of his life and that mm. might have been part of the reason why he stopped writing to it. Yes. Also, we should say that their correspondence was platonic but she thought that it might be leading up to marriage but he was... Oh. I think she knew the sort of woman that he was interested mm. in and she always thought of herself as very plain and she was very shy. So I don't really think she thought she was in with a chance, but I think she might have been a bit in love with him. And she seems to have sort of stuck by him even when he, he was having a lot of trouble. This was mm. a, a really catty literary column that I found from Adelaide Quiz from the 9th of May, 1890. John Ruskin's insanity takes a troublesome form at times. When he becomes frantic, he jumps out of bed and smashes all the windows in his room. One day when he was very quiet, Kate Greenaway came to sketch in his garden. Ruskin suddenly appeared, took the brush from her hand and began to daub her dress with paint, designing a costume far more grotesque than any she had ever depicted in her popular sketches. That's awful. I mean, the depictions of mental health were so terrible. Well, they were terrible 20 years ago, so look what they were like in the 1800s. No sort of compassion whatsoever. But she obviously was still visiting him. She was really, really devoted to him, and Mm. I think she only died a year after he did. That's right. She was really probably still grieving him. She had breast cancer, but she didn't tell people, so she just was quietly ill and then quietly died. And she was in her 50s, so she yeah. was very young. And her career really, I think, peaked in the 1880s and then in the 1890s. It's hard to maintain popularity over... Really- yeah. She stopped as well. She started just doing little paintings and things like that. She wasn't really doing the books anymore. But then after her death, there was a revival, I think, after maybe in the 30s there was a revival. And I think there have been various revivals. I mean, obviously, my book was 1970s. Is she still in print? Um, I think occasionally you'll get... Like a collection or something like that. There's another article, this is actually after her death now, from the Adelaide Observer, the 24th of February 1906. It's titled Children's Dress, Past and Present. It is now five years since the death of Kate Greenaway, the gentle child lover who with her clever pencil waged ceaseless war against the ugliness of the world, which is kind of what... Yeah, yeah. But the publication of her correspondence with John Ruskin has made the lovely personality of this gracious woman and artist seem even more real than it was while she lived. She was one of the small transfigured band of those who loved art for itself and followed her inspiration heedless of the opinions of others, even of Ruskin, who, while he admired her work without stint, tried in vain to make her alter her methods according to his own views. Which is That's also yeah. a lovely thing for people to take from it, isn't it? That mm. just keep following your own path keep believing in your instincts I think that's a really good message for any creator it's really hard though I think to know when do you do that and when do you need feedback because it's another perspective that's helpful but I think the the editorial feedback is should be addressing what you've created not telling you to create a completely different thing maybe maybe the thing is you've got to get over that initial reaction that you had give it some time Mm. like you were saying the first minute Mm. yeah There's a sweet spot. I always say this in my assessments. Don't ask me questions until you've thought about this for two weeks. 
then ask yeah. me all the questions you want about my assessment and don't leave it more than three months because then it will be stale. But ah, there's like, that's the kind of sweet yeah. spot where you can ask me anything you didn't understand in my report. Let's have a conversation about yeah. it, but not straight away because that you are react, you're very raw. You've been hit with criticism, sometimes pages long. And I think you just need to sit with that. I think that's, that's good advice, I think. So Kate Greenway lived a retired life. She was narrow and she was not a great artist, but she was herself and trusted herself. Hence her success in revolutionising the dressing of children of two continents. So this is often (laughs) Mm. mentioned as her very big legacy. And see, this is funny because I look at like an old fashioned book and I go, oh yeah, that's what kids wore in those days. Mm. Not true. She did not draw children as they were at that time. No. Children's clothing was very restrictive and there was a bit of a fashion for dressing them up just like women. Yep. And wearing very tight clothes and things. And she put them in these lovely draping. Yeah, so she was really drawing her grandparents. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so it was old-fashioned at mm. the time, mm. which is hard for us to yeah, <laughs> realise. But I think we have, in various decades, gone back to those things. Definitely I wore little smock dresses. Yeah. I mean, not yeah. really long ones like this, mm. but definitely with that kind of smocking yeah, on the chest same. Yeah. and the puffy sleeve, yeah. And but it would only have come to my knee. <laughs> and so do you, can you think of any other authors who've had that kind of influence on fashion? Not sure in terms of a, a whole style. I guess in specific items, like I've got a Paddington Bear coat. Oh, yeah. And I love putting that on and thinking about yeah. Paddington Bear and his marmalade sandwiches. Gives <laughs> That's me a, cute, yeah. I think of it every time. Yeah. Um, Little yeah. Lord Fauntroy, I think, was another one from that time that created a yes. style. Yeah. And I think definitely authors have created characters that people have then wanted to look more like I mean like Holly Golightly like who doesn't want to wear like the lovely elegant black dress and a choker and I mean we might associate it now with Audrey Hepburn but the creation of those kind of very stylish characters in the first place but I don't think in terms of creating a whole line of clothes like Kate Greenaway like Liberties of London created clothes so that people could dress like yeah. a Kate Greenaway book. Yeah, and it was called a Greenaway costume. Before her time, the clothing of children lacked grace in such a marked degree that plain ones looked ugly and even the prettiest could not be anything but plain. God, I wish it was a dress that I could just put on that would take me like yeah. up that step. Elevate you yeah. to that point. I, I always look at pictures of lovely flowing dresses and think I would like to wear one and then as soon as I put one on I just I feel like I'm wearing a bed sheet and I've got to take it off and put my jeans on I aspire to wear a dress but so far Kate Greenaway hated child millinery and the grotesque little caricatures of men and women that represented child dressing in the days of her youth but when her pencil began to express the prettiness of children their grace and delightful ways and garb them in simple and exquisitely graceful garments, a change came over the dressing of little people. It was felt at once that their slender little forms required quite a different style of clothing from that of grown-ups. Then came in the dainty smock with its plain straight lines and absence of constriction and the sunbonnet of muslin and silk, a headgear that makes even the plainest child look at least interesting. Oh. <laughs> oh, Get a bonnet on that kid. Have you tried putting a, Put bonnet, a bonnet on yes. it? Yes. <laughs> oh, it's not an attractive one. Put a bonnet on it. Oh, I love old newspapers. But that is very, you know, that's success, you know. like That's influence. She absolutely. was just quietly getting on with it and just quietly influencing how children were being dressed, you know. Yeah. Kate Greenaway was a great artist in her own line, a fact which we seem to be in danger of forgetting but one which was fully realised by Ruskin, whose letters to her, one for nearly every day for three years, are packed with appreciation of the exquisite beauty and delicacy of her delineations of child life. And yet it is a fact that Max Nordau, who for some reason or other is looked upon as a critic of note, considered this charming lady who loved the nursery and laughter as a degenerate and a decadent. I don't know wow. what that means at the end. Like, I love that. I love that the review. Yeah, I don't. I haven't looked up Max Nordau, but I don't like him. No, no, he sounds awful. But also, she was she was an artist, but also she was an illustrator. She's illustrating for children. She's not exhibiting at the National Portrait Gallery, no. and she's doing 
things in in her way. I think that maybe they are holding her to a standard that she wasn't trying to reach. Yeah, she's trying to make the pictures interesting for a child to look at in a book. She's trying to make it accessible to a child. And Mm. I remember just looking at their faces. Yeah. I really, really remember that I would always look at the expressions Mm. of the children. Mentioned this a little bit at the start, but there's something called the Greenaway Medal. There has been, yeah, there was. for many decades, the Kate Greenaway Medal. And it's a UK award for mm. illustration and it's alongside the Carnegie Medal. Yes. And then what happened? Sort of quietly, I think, they decided to remove Kate Greenaway's name from the medal. Which happens sometimes, often understandable reasons. Someone think more about their life and think, oh, that's not... Doesn't align with... Yeah. But I don't think that was the case. No, I mean, she was obviously a paragon of innocence and purity. She was... There was no dark side to Kate Greenaway whatsoever. So Mm. she hasn't been cancelled. She has been quietly removed. The argument from the body that decided to do that was that they wanted to bring the illustration medal in line with the writing medal, which is the Carnegie Medal for Literature. So both would be named after a man. Yes. Yes. So the Carnegie Medal is named after Andrew Carnegie, who was in steel and was one of the richest men in the world and who then gave most of his money away, including many, many libraries. Yeah, that's why the Carnegie so that's many why, institutes. Yeah, so that's why it's called the Carnegie Medal. Mm-hmm. But he was a much more complicated and dark figure than Kate Greenaway. Yeah. It would be a little bit like saying, well, if Jeff Bezos gives away all his money now, let's have the Jeff Bezos Medal for Literature. Yeah. yeah. And I think a lot of people would not enjoy that. Probably not. <laughs> no. The Elon Musk Medal for Illustration. No. Who wants to win that? <laughs> You know, so I think um, a lot of illustrators and authors were very upset and librarians were very upset when Kate Greenaway's name was removed. And there was a petition that was started by a librarian and an author, which gained a lot of signatures. But no, it is now known as the Yoto Carnegie Medal. Who is Yoto? Um, And Yoto are an audiobook company. And they sponsor the award. So for illustration. For illustration. So um, Audiobooks, mm, that mm, famous vehicle mm, for illustration. Yeah. Just picture it in your head, kids. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's sad. And I don't think that it's necessarily about it must always be called the Kate Greenaway. But I think if you're going to quietly remove a woman who came from a kind of working class background and gained international success yeah. on her terms, what are you saying to the world really when you're keeping the name of Andrew Carnegie whose business practices caused the death of many people and the deprivations of many families in order mm. to become the richest mm. man in the world many people really suffered so she was kind of illustrating books to take children's mind off the suffering that he was causing exactly mm. it's exactly. a vicious cycle yes because his attitude towards business was cut costs for anything yeah. cut workers wages increase their hours, increase production, whatever you need to do. And and that made him extremely rich. So a complicated man and a not very complicated and lovely woman. Mm. So that's why I think this is quite an interesting debate to be had in terms of what, how we name awards and who we honour and who we just quietly get rid of. Mm. The other thing is like awards, even when people don't understand the whole history of it, they kind of develop a history like people know about the Greenaway Medal and... That's the thing that they want to get. Illustrators would love to win the Greenaway Medal. That's it's a legacy that is not about whether she was the best at drawing feet. It's about <laughs> she had a whole career from a, a not such a poor working class background. Obviously, she, you know she, her parents were in work and um, she had art lessons, so it's not like she came from the streets or whatever. Yeah. And you know, don't want to sort of overegg that. But I think it's yeah. also very um, sort of inspirational for those of us who can't draw feet. Exactly. Yeah, you could still do a really good Pop job. a little shoe yeah. on it and you yeah. don't have to show the feet at all. No, exactly. <laughs> it's all right. Obviously, you're great at bones. So I that's, mean, that's that's right. They don't need shoes. No, no That'll shoes be fine. required. <laughs> Strip it back. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Emily. Now, where is the best place for people to find you? Probably my newsletter, which is called Voracious, and it's a Substack newsletter, which you can have delivered to your inbox if you like, or you can just visit Substack. Um, where there are lots of amazing newsletters. I really recommend it. 
And it's great for sort of a bit more long form reading and getting away from that scrolling that we've been doing for yes, years. Yes, I think that's very true. But put Emily's at the top of your list. Oh, <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. It was such a delight to talk about this quite niche subject, but you can sort of take it in lots of directions, which is nice. That was funny. I wish you had recorded you saying I haven't pressed record because yes. that was very dramatic yes. and good. Imagine if I'd left it. I was <laughs> really not sure what was happening. Like <laughs> and he usually just goes with the flow. What's going on? We know where we're going now. Yes. We'll just say the exact yeah. same words yeah, in the exact same order. Yeah. <laughs> I remember everything I said. <laughs>